This is The Guardian. Last June, I found myself outside King's Place, The Guardian's London headquarters. I was here for a board meeting. Recording in progress. The Scott Trust, the company that owns The Guardian, was gathering. Reporters aren't usually invited to these meetings, but this one was different. You can't see your PowerPoint so far, Trevor. On the agenda was some research that had been commissioned into whether The Guardian's first editor, John Edward Taylor, had links to transatlantic slavery. In the summer of 2020, when we first began to discuss Taylor and this history, I was not convinced we'd ever get to the point of being able to see the document that Cassie's just shown us. That's uh, Professor David Olusogar talking at the meeting that day. You might recognise his voice from the TV. He's a historian and broadcaster and one of the members of the Scott Trust. The summer of 2020 that he was referencing was the summer of a racial reckoning. Following the murder of George Floyd, people took to the streets around the world. In Bristol in the UK, TV cameras captured protesters pulling down the statue of a 17th century slave trader, Edward Colston, and throwing it into the harbour. In that moment, a direct link between the past and the present was being made. And it was part of a chain of events that saw organisations across the country asking themselves the same question. Did they have a link to transatlantic slavery? I'm Maya Wolf-Robinson. I've been a journalist at The Guardian for over a decade. I live in Manchester, and normally I report the news from the north of England. But for the past year, I've been working on a project. A project that is going to change the story The Guardian tells about itself. Here's David again, talking to the board. The story of John Edward Taylor and his little circle of liberal non-conformist journalists and investors who sought to create a voice for reform after Peter Lee is a story that we should still be proud of, but it exists within a broader and more complicated context. The connections between The Guardian, its investors and transatlantic slavery are as much part of our heritage as that other history. And they are also permanently part of The Guardian's history. The research team from the universities of Nottingham and Hull had discovered, through years of painstaking work, that The Guardian did have links to transatlantic slavery. It's the perpetrators who leave the business records, the wills, the inventories, and they speak loudest to us from the past. It is very powerful, I think, and very important that we can look at those documents and we can see the names and the ages and the places of birth of people whose lives were commoditized by the men who funded The Guardian. That afternoon in the boardroom felt like a seismic moment. The decisions that we make here today will be as much part of the history of The Guardian as the histories that Cassie and Trevor and Cheryl Ann have uncovered. Thank you. Those histories have taken us from Manchester to the Caribbean, the United States, Nigeria, Brazil and back to the UK. This series is going to take you there too. We'll share what we found and look at the impact that history is still having. It may be the first time The Guardian has looked for these connections in our own story, but we're definitely not the first to explore how the brutal history of transatlantic slavery links Manchester and Britain to the world. 
This project is one more piece of that work and it couldn't have been done without the scholars and activists who have been making these links for decades. From The Guardian, you're listening to Cotton Capital, Episode 1. The Bee and the Ship. Like, what did he look like? So based on the images that I've seen of him, he looks like a typical British guy back then. You know, <laughs> poofy hair back then. He had long... <laughs> he did have poofy hair in a lot of his pictures. <laughs> Quite long sideburns as well. And sharp nose, small eyes. Um, yeah, basically that's the image I have of him. Okay. This is Dr. Cassandra Gupta, though she said I can call her Cassie in this series. She's part of a team from the University of Hull investigating Guardian founder John Edward Taylor and his links to transatlantic slavery. And she's from Trinidad and Tobago, the Caribbean country where my mum was born, one of the reasons we instantly had a connection. Most of the pictures of him, you see him in front of a table or something looking very intellectual with his little feather pen, stuff like that. So like you're power so, poses. Power poses, yeah. And he was married to his first cousin. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was interesting. He was married to his first cousin, Sophia Russell. She passed away, I think, in 1812. After she passed away, he did get married to Harriet Ackland. Taylor had four children and lived in a smart terraced house on leafy Islington Street in Salford. Back then, it was just outside the western edge of Manchester, an industrial city in the northwest of England. He was someone who was involved with business. It was not extensive. He was more or less, I would say, um, associated with journalism and political reform and those things. At that time, he would have been considered fairly progressive in his views. He was part of this society in Manchester called the Little Circle. And you had a lot of elite people in it all for like liberal values, basically. And so that's probably part of what spurred him on. He also used to write for newspapers. So I think Manchester Gazette is one of those he used to write for. The little circle met in parlour rooms to discuss the issues of the day. Workers' rights, religious freedoms and parliamentary reform. Back then, rapidly growing cities like Manchester had no dedicated representation in parliament. And many in the little circle, who were part of the new middle class felt like they should have a say in how the country was being run. On Sundays, many of the circle also met at the same grand church, right in the centre of the city. It was a pretty famous church that still exists today. The Cross Street Chapel was a place where a lot of Manchester elite, especially businessmen, they would interact with each other there. What was interesting is that you would have people who were abolitionists, and people who were pro-slavery congregating in this one chapel. And a lot of Taylor's circle and some of the associates involved in these reports, they were part of Cross Street Chapel. To understand the world of John Edward Taylor, you also need to understand the city he lived in. You know, I'm a, a serious professional academic historian, like, you know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Back in 1853, and Colts, mate. <clears throat> Dr. Matthew Stallard is a serious professional academic historian. 
at the University College London Centre for the Legacies of British Slavery. Based in Manchester, much of his work is centred on the city in Taylor's time. In 1821, the year The Guardian was founded, there was one industry dominating Manchester, cotton. And it seemed like everyone was involved in the trade, including Taylor and many in his circle. Well, I mean, Manchester is cottonopolis, so I mean, <laughs> pretty much everyone. It depends how direct or indirect you want to be, isn't it? Obviously, if you're a cotton merchant or you own a cotton manufacturing company, you're heavily involved. If you're any kind of engineer or creating kind of machinery, you're probably making a lot of your machinery to sell to mill owners and manufacturers. The whole city, it seems, was geared towards the production and selling of cotton textiles. The canals, the railways, the core transport infrastructure of the entire city were funded by mainly the cotton merchants and their allies in the banking sector. Most major cultural institutions founded at that time are funded by some kind of cotton merchants and manufacturers. Churches, hospitals, institutions that went on to become Manchester University, the John Rylands Library, where you can now find all of the Guardian archives, all funded on the production and selling of cotton textiles. But just around the corner from the Grand City Centre, right on the canal, lay a very different world, Ancoats, the industrial heart of Manchester, still connected to cotton, but a world away from the genteel parlour rooms of the merchants and manufacturers. You'd have been here in the mills from your house, but if you were in the mill itself, one of the biggest health impacts of working in a mill was hearing loss and deafness because of that constant machinery. Ancoats was the heart of Manchester's textile industry, full of the cotton mills where the spinning machines never stopped running, pumping out cloth day in, day out. You've got smoke and smog, Coal is what's powering the mills. Coal is often, if people can get it, what's warming their houses. So you're walking outside and that's what you can smell and that's what you're breathing in. What was going on in Ancoats, the machines, the factories, the urban slums, was going to transform the way the world worked. We were in what has been called the shock city of industrialisations. Conditions were tough. Records from one mill owned by McConnell and Kennedy showed just how tough. 30%, so nearly 500 of the workers there, were under the age of 15. Over 40% were under the age of 18. 108 married men working in the factory. Between them, they'd had 524 children, of which over 40% of those children were not alive when this survey was taken. So this is a very, very deprived and <sighs> appalling social situation. In a city where the rich were getting wealthier and wealthier off the backs of the working classes, tensions were about to reach boiling point. On the 16th of August, 1819, an event took place that would change the course of John Edward Taylor's career and would be forever immortalised in the story of modern Manchester. On that day, 60,000 working people marched to St Peter's Field in the centre of the city. They were there for a demonstration. They were fed up of not having enough money, not having enough to eat, and of not having a say in their own lives. 
They wanted the right to vote. Not just what Taylor and his circle wanted, votes for men of property, but votes for all. And in the crowd that day was Taylor himself, reporting on what was happening. Despite it being a peaceful protest, later that day, armed soldiers stormed the crowds, wielding swords. In the chaos that ensued, around 18 people were killed and more than 650 were injured. It became known as the Peterloo Massacre. It would be hailed as a major milestone in the history of rights for working people and it paved the way for modern parliamentary democracy. For the 28-year-old Taylor, it was a pivotal moment too. He saw how the authorities were seeking to discredit the protesters and it led him to set up his own paper, The Manchester Guardian. And along with 11 of his associates that he knew in the little circle in various places, they decided to get together and they contributed £100 each to the founding of the Manchester Guardian. Taylor saw an injustice and decided to found The Guardian. This story is pretty well known. That's the why, but the how has been much less interrogated. Specifically, where did the money come from to establish the paper? Many of these founders were involved in cotton, which hasn't been a secret. But all that cotton that was flooding into Manchester, where was it coming from? The growth of Cottonopolis, the world's first industrial city, was absolutely tied to the growth of the cotton frontier across the southern United States. That frontier across the southern states of America is well known. It's the story of transatlantic slavery. Over hundreds of years, the British and other European colonizers engaged in the kidnapping of millions of men, women and children. They were taken from West and Central Africa, trafficked across the Atlantic and forced into a life of enslavement in the Americas, including the Caribbean. For hundreds of years, generations of people were born, lived and died under this brutal system. These huge swathes of what's now the southern United States, starting from the Carolinas and Georgia and Florida, but all the way across into Texas, are year by year, county by county, expropriated from the indigenous peoples. People are literally dragged off of their land and forcibly evicted and moved. And thousands of miles is converted into cotton plantations. And where did that cotton go? The UK was the number one destination. Despite the fact the slave trade and slavery in the British Empire had been abolished decades before, by the 1850s, over 70% of cotton from the United States was headed for Britain. You can trace on the graph decade by decade British manufactured cotton production and United States raw cotton exports and they literally mirror each other year by year, point by point. That demand was fueling the system of transatlantic slavery in the United States. It's a symbiotic thing. The more the demand rises in Britain, the more that the cotton is produced more cheaply. It feeds itself on both sides. And you have the success in 1807 of the abolitionist movement in achieving the abolition of the slave trade in Britain. At the very same moment that Manchester, which has been a very important city in abolition, you had petitions signed by thousands of Manchester residents against the slave trade. At that moment of great success and breakthrough to finally end the slave trade, Manchester is 
literally at the center of this huge boom in cotton manufacturing, which is entirely driven by enslavement. The iconic images of the Industrial Revolution in Britain, the towering factories with their steam-powered machines transforming cities, these go hand-in-hand with another well-known picture, the old south of the United States. Rows and rows of cotton fields, the wooden great house with the veranda, and an inhumane system of work enforced by the whip. Did people not make those connections at the time? Did they not realise where the cotton was coming from? They very much knew where the cotton was coming from and it's interesting to think about the kind of mental gymnastics that one would have gone through. So Taylor and nearly all of his backers are in the cotton business. That means they were almost certainly dealing in cotton picked by enslaved people. We wanted to find out exactly where the cotton was coming from and who was picking it. We started with The Guardian founder, John Edward Taylor. I mean, as far as I know how he made his money, he went into business with John Shuttleworth, who was also his friend from Little Circle. Taylor joined John Shuttleworth's company as one of the partners, and that was the company he was working with at the time he founded the Manchester Guardian in 1821. That firm's name was Shuttleworth Taylor & Company. When you look at the trade directories, they were listed as cotton merchants. They were listed as cotton dealers. With that information, Cassie embarked on two years of digging in archive libraries, travelling to county record offices and trawling through dusty invoice books and long-forgotten letters. Eventually, that led Cassie to what Taylor's cotton trading really meant. There were two smoking guns in this research, I would say. Cassie was able to trace deals that Shuttleworth, Taylor & Company had made as agents for a family company called W.G. Strutt. The Strutts were huge in the cotton business. The Strutts were getting their cotton from all over. They were getting it from Brazil, the southern states in America, West Indies, Guyana, Suriname, all of those places they were getting cotton. And we now were able to link Taylor to these various regions. John Edward Taylor wasn't just a bystander. He was actively buying cotton from countries where the brutal conditions that enslaved people were being forced to work under were well known. And the second smoking gun is the Sea Islands one. Cassie discovered something rarely found in this type of research, a direct link between Taylor's company and specific enslavers who owned plantations on the Sea Islands on the southeast coast of the United States. That means it's possible to find an exact cotton plantation in the United States that was once working with Taylor and link it to the descendants of those once enslaved on those islands who still live there today. That community is called the Gullah Geechee. And then when you think about sea islands and the plantations, you think about the enslaved people there and their descendants, you know, the Gullah Geechee people. But it wasn't just John Edward Taylor's money that went into The Guardian. There were 11 funders. George Phillips, George William Wood, the Potter brothers, Edward Baxter, Sanderson, Robert Phillips, William Duckworth, Thomas Wilkins, Samuel Pullen and Thomas Johnson. Taylor knew them through work, from social circles like the Cross Street Chapel or the Little Circle, and through marriage and familial links. Two of the 11 were tricky to look into. Thomas Johnson and Thomas Wilkins. They just had the most common names ever. (laughs) But for the others, it was easier. 
Cassie was looking specifically at whether their money was linked to transatlantic slavery. Yeah, all of them had links to varied degrees of involvement. A few in particular stood out to Cassie. One was George William Wood, who went on to become an MP. And he was part of a firm called Phillips Wood and Company. They were involved with the hatting business and they were sending their hats to America and things like that. But they were also importing raw commodities. So here you have a firm importing raw cotton from Brazil that was grown by the enslaved people. And then they're manufacturing this into textiles and then re-exporting it and sending it back to these places. Like with Taylor, it was another link to the enslaved people in Brazil. But what she found with a man called Sir George Phillips proved something even more specific. So George Phillips is an interesting one because I think he's quite well known in Manchester. Sir George Phillips has been described as one of the wealthiest and most successful entrepreneurs of the Industrial Revolution. He was even nicknamed King Cotton. Phillips was part of a family firm called GNN Phillips, who were involved in importing different enslaved-produced commodities, as well as exporting manufactured goods like cotton textiles to the Americas and various parts of the world. So what Sir George Phillips, in terms of how he benefited from that, he inherited a lot of the slavery-derived wealth, as well as he had cotton firms of his own, cotton mills on of his own, which he also benefited from enslaved people picking this cotton. He was involved with sugar as well. He, as part of the firm, Boddington, Sharp and Phillips, they owned a plantation in Jamaica and enslaved people in Jamaica. And so he was one of the most important figures, I think, for this whole report. It's a far cry from the origin stories many of us have had in our heads when we think about the early days of The Guardian. At least nine of the 11 financial backers, plus Taylor himself, made their money from cotton. So that means that the money that founded The Guardian relied on the forced labour of enslaved African people. It perhaps explains why, alongside articles promoting liberal values, the Manchester Guardian also acted as a kind of trade magazine for the cotton industry. You know, there were statistics about the price of cotton, very specific things, almost like a stock exchange in paper. Mm -hmm. And I think that they tried to create a newspaper that would benefit people who were like them. So it's such a contradiction, you know, when we look at it from contemporary lens, that on one hand they're talking about civil liberties in Britain and things. But then in the same paragraph, you read about the cotton industry and cotton manufacturing, and we're going to publish stuff about this, you know. Mm. So it's such a very glaring disconnect. Do we know what Taylor thought about people from different racial backgrounds? I did read an opinion piece by him where he talked about the evils of colonial slavery and he seemed to be condemned in it, but he highlighted the tax burden on people here. He was putting that above the humanitarian aspect. And what was interesting to note with some of these funders is that George Phillips, for example, he was also uh, what he considered an abolitionist, but it did not stop him from being involved with this firm that owned enslaved people and then also from importing cotton from these places that were reliant on enslaved labor. And I keep seeing it again and again in this type of research. There seems to be this disconnect from what they're doing and benefiting from financially and what they're standing for. 
Walking around the centre of Manchester today, where the forest of chimneys has been replaced by a skyline of skyscrapers, you can't avoid the symbol of the bee. On buses, bins and all over the town hall too, the humble, hard-working bee represents the power of those factory workers, as people in Manchester will tell you. Bee. Yeah, yeah working bee. Yeah. Industry working bee. Industrial yeah. revolution, baby. That way, yeah. Working bees, yeah. Because it were like that in the old days, weren't it? When I was actually courting my wife, taking my wife out, right, she was working at a, a factory in Ankles, where they used to cold bedding and so forth. That's all Manchester's always been old factories and things. The mills and the bed. When you look at the city's coat of arms, the bees are there, pride of place. But there's another symbol on that crest, one that is not often noticed or remembered, a ship. Once you've spotted it, you start to see it everywhere too. There's no way Manchester could have been the world's first industrial city without its workers. But just as essential was the labour of enslaved Africans and the millions of tonnes of cotton shipped in from across the ocean. Some in Manchester haven't really thought about where the cotton came from. It probably came from, well, it came from abroad, didn't it? We can't grow no Korea. We can't grow no cotton here, like. Not yet, anyhow. <laughs> it's not warm enough, is it? Never really thought about it so deep, you know what I mean? Never never really went into it that on, on that level. Others, especially in recent years, have found out. Manchester was a really big part to play in it. It's not told about summer. Not till recently, <laughs> when it was Black Lives Matter. Yeah. I mean, transatlantic slave trade, this is the transatlantic, so <laughs> to North America, the southern states, the ships, the Caribbean, west coast of Africa. I'm Nigerian by uh, heritage, so I have some knowledge of that kind of stuff, but yeah. But why do some of us still see the bee and not the ship? The way history's taught and the way it's understood creates this trick, this illusion, where we are so accustomed to seeing one thing and not seeing the other. If you think about beautiful Georgian buildings in Britain, we want to look at them and look at the elegance and the proportion. We want to imagine these Jane Austen lifestyles. What we tend not to want to know and not to go looking for is where the money came from to build them. And that's what I think of as the trick, the ability to think of something in Britain as only connected to Britain and not having any connections to the outer world. You've already heard from David Olushoga. As well as being on the Scott Trust, he's a professor of public history at the University of Manchester. I grew up in the northeast of England, and the history we were taught inevitably focused on the Industrial Revolution. I'm half white working class. My family are from the Scottish Lowlands and from Tyneside. And that was presented to me as it is part of my history, part of my family history. What was missing was anything to do with the empire, anything to do with my Nigerian father's history and how he came to be part of Britain's empire. So the stories that led to the country being diverse, its history being imperial, was entirely absent. In his decades as a historian and writer, David has spent a lot of time reflecting on the relationship Britain has with its own history. We tend consciously or subconsciously, to go to history to feel good about ourselves, to be told stories about British exceptionalism. Now, if your relationship with history is one of recreation, a place to go for these positive emotions, you necessarily need to edit out of that history the 
chapters of the past that can't provide those positive emotions. And one of those chapters is centred on the enslavement of African people, chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is distinct because chattel slavery is conversion of a human being absolutely to property, something that can be inherited in wills, something that can be insured against. It is the commoditization of a human being. That system is unique. So at a very fundamental level, if history is recreation, you can't have these dark histories of empire, slavery and race. So in some ways they're edited out almost before we begin because they don't fit this template. And that deep relationship with history is something which is being challenged now at a very fundamental and generational level. Because the young people I encounter who come to my talks, that I lecture, they don't seem to have that relationship with history. They don't expect history to be this arena in which they go to, to be told these wondrous tales that they're an exceptional people with an exceptional history. They understand from the outset that history will also contain deeply troubling and challenging aspects of their nation's past, things that don't elicit pride, don't elicit those positive emotions. That enormous expectational shift in what history is and how we should relate to it, I think is underpinning a lot of what's happening in these discussions about slavery and about empire. And yet, even though David is acutely aware of what he calls the trick of history, the way in which our minds can allow us to sometimes see certain connections but lose sight of others... He has fallen for it too. Because when I was asked to join the Scott Trust, my mind went to Peterloo, to the history of working-class radicalism out of which The Guardian formed, a history that means lots to me. I'm from the northeast. I was brought up on the council estate. That working-class history, really vital to me. It didn't go to the cotton traders, who were the men who founded it and where their wealth came from. I fell for exactly the trick I counsel others to watch for because I was brought up in this country, because I'm liable to it. Because knowing how the trick is done doesn't mean you're immune from falling for it. And that's been a kind of really fascinating lesson, that that cognitive dissonance, that ability to see histories and to lose their connections to other people in other places, that even if you know that trick's out there, evidently, demonstrably, as I have learnt to my embarrassment, does not mean you're immune from falling for it. Those connections have been broken for so long that reconnecting them in our minds and in our culture is really difficult. And if I can fall for them, anyone can. The fact that even David can fall for this trick reveals just how disconnected our histories have become. This cognitive dissonance, as David calls it, could in part be explained because so much of the brutality that took place was overseas. But for many, it's much more intentional than that. The fates of people in other parts of the world at the hands of the British and their partners have been purposefully written out of history, hidden away, or as David feels, forcefully rejected. Why did so many dynasties involved in slavery airbrush their family history? Why did cities that grew rich on slavery not want to mention it? Why did the statue of Edward Colston mention his philanthropy and not the source of the money he gave to Bristol? Whenever you debate slavery, there are many people who are really desperate to find an end date, to draw a line underneath this history and to say that Britain ended slavery first, which I'm afraid is not true, or Britain ended the slave trade first, which again is not true. I study and I write about lots of different arena of history. The only areas where I am told I shouldn't be looking at the past 
I'm wasting my time. I'm causing division by studying history. British history is to do with slavery and empire. To the end of this flag, and we got this whole property okay. uh, over the regeneration. So I have planted a few things. I have a whole vegetable plot. I have sweet potato. I have Irish potato. I have apples just finished picking. And this is my flowering bed. I try to plant a tree or something every birthday. I'm in a quiet, tucked away spot near Manchester city centre. Washington Olcott is showing me round his garden. I'm building a summer house there. And all of that is reclaimed material. Is this from your dad? Is this the yes, farmer's this son? Is a, this is, yes, yeah, this is a farm. <laughs> Coming so, out. Yeah, come to England. So um, I still have to do my farming, uh, my tomato. Mr. Alcott is a teacher and historical researcher who moved from Jamaica to Manchester in the 90s. Did you have an image of Manchester in your mind before you arrived? I did. Firstly, I knew about Manchester, particularly from primary school back in Jamaica, where we were taught about the Industrial Revolution created in the north of England, very cold place. And uh, as I grew older and I started to read, I was particularly interested in around cotton. That interest in cotton, as well as its origins, meant that as soon as Mr Olcott arrived in the city, he saw its legacy everywhere. The city was generally derelict, especially a large number of the Victorian buildings, a number of the mills from the Industrial Revolution. When I saw the facade of building and the level of development, immediately I said, there goes slavery money. Like David Olushoga, Mr. Olcott found himself up against a lot of resistance. At first, I began to share it with a few people who I know to say, look, this is built by slavery. And the issue was, ah, where did you get that from? And I began to pull the secondary sources because clearly no one trusted what I was saying. So I started to show people that here, this is not me. This is what you more think is credible. Go and look at the building. Someone heard of what I was doing and asked me if I would be interested to do a walk. This was late 90s, yeah. These tours wound their way through the city centre, past banks, old factories and along the canals. Mr Alcott was struck by some of the reactions he received to his walking tours. Well, the first question the white people asked was, is it a fact that black people sold black people in slavery? Because they don't know any better. Then the second reaction was that the number of people who live in this city and move around every day did not know that the city had so much to do with the Atlantic slave trade. He went on to be part of the Revealing Histories project in 2007, which brought together eight Manchester museums to remember transatlantic slavery and its legacies. Here he is talking about the history of the city. This is the Rushdale Canal. Can you imagine the bales and bales of cotton that flow along this waterway? It was that cotton that ended up in West Africa via the Manchester traders. This body of water shows the development of the British Atlantic slave trade, which was abolished in 18... For Mr Alcott, addressing the way this history isn't widely known begins in schools. 
I have done workshops in Cotton and Manchester's link in secondary schools a few times in Manchester and um, students are dumbfounded, live in the city and didn't know that this exists. And therefore, the question has to be asked, do they really want to teach African and black history in school at the level at which it is to be taught. It sounds like you're saying you don't think that they do. They don't. Teaching this history, one that connects Britain to African people, needs to go beyond what Mr Olcott feels is the same tired narrative. Why did you come to England? What were the discrimination you face? One linear type of questioning. So you read one, you read all. Instead, it needs to connect that past to what it means for black people today. The Guardian, all of these newspapers which is now riding on Black Lives Matter, it's good that their awareness is being created, but fundamentally, are they interested in ensuring that equality means equality, that liberation of the black people, the struggle for black lives are really dealt with, not being sugar-coated. Are they interested in that? My answer is no and no. Why does the history of transatlantic slavery matter so much? Not just for The Guardian or for Manchester. After all, there are some people who would argue that the past is in the past, that we should move on from it. But it's not all in the past. For David Odushoga, there are two particularly important legacies that remain with us today. The first is the idea of race. The other thing that is unique about the forms of slavery that emerge in the Caribbean and in the Americas in the 17th and 18th centuries is that it's racialized. It says that people of one ethnic or racial group are synonymous with slavery and that they are suited to slavery. It required the propagation of these ideas over decades and huge amounts of money and effort and ingenuity and creativity went into creating those stereotypes. And what is striking when you read the books written and the pamphlets designed by the slavery lobby, the slave traders, the slave owners, their supporters in Parliament, the people they paid to write those documents and produce those cartoons and books, is that you come into contact with the stereotypes that we know today. The idea that black people are of the body but not of the mind. The idea that black people are childish and not capable of adult reflection and adult thoughts. The idea that black people are over-sexualized, that black people are by their nature violent. Those ideas that are still in our thinking, that still in our societies, that still shape the life chances of people in Britain, in America, in France and elsewhere today, were the product of the slave system. Racism came out of slavery. Racism didn't pre-exist. Of course, there were forms of prejudice. Of course, there was fascination and in some ways shock about human physical difference. But that's not racism. Racism is a system of hierarchies and it was invented to justify the slave trade and slavery. They've outlasted slavery. They've outlasted the age of the European empires and they are still with us. The other legacy, according to David, is economic injustice. There were people in the Caribbean who live in poverty people in the South of America who live in poverty, who are the descendants of the enslaved, and there are wealthy benefactors in Western countries who are the beneficiaries of that system. We're talking about the financial case for reparations or restorative justice. 
the wider need to acknowledge and repair the damage specifically done to enslaved African people and their descendants. This is an important issue to tackle for governments, individual families and institutions, and that includes The Guardian. We're going to return to this later in the series. This story started with us looking at the money that was used to found The Guardian, money linked to transatlantic slavery that helped fuel Manchester's so-called boom years as the global centre of industrialisation. But for many, the legacies of that industry went beyond cotton. Britain has never been simply an island. At its high point, it governed about one in four of the world's population. This is Gaminda Bambra, Professor of Sociology at the University of Sussex. She believes that to understand the full implications of transatlantic slavery, we need to see its place in a wider picture of the British Empire. Britain's involvement in what's understood as the triangular trade, that is the trade between Europe, Africa and the Americas, is embedded in a much more global trade that also includes the Indian Ocean world. And these things together are what generate the wealth and prosperity of Britain over the last couple of centuries. In 1821, the year The Guardian was founded, Britain as a whole was well on its way to becoming the workshop of the world. With Manchester as its booming cotton capital, other cities were trying to achieve the same success within different industries. Birmingham for guns, Glasgow for tobacco and Stoke for ceramics. This industrialisation drew in other parts of the world beyond the Atlantic Triangle and entrenched a dynamic where Western countries took in materials from the rest of the world and sold the finished goods back at a much higher price. The colonial activities of European states are occurring at the same time as these developments that are called capitalism. It was a global trading dynamic that remains with us in so many ways today. There's no way of understanding inequality in the present without tracing it to the processes of colonisation. And like Professor Olishoga, Professor Bamba recognises that there are consequences to grappling with these histories. But there's also a sort of political consequence that if we were to acknowledge these histories, perhaps we might have to do something about them. So it's easier not to engage with them because they pose very difficult questions for us in the present in terms of how might we be inclined to redistribute our wealth as a consequence of recognising where that wealth came from. Within Britain, we haven't been great at national redistribution. If we're talking now about colonial redistribution, can you imagine how much harder that conversation is going to be? But there's no way in which we can address inequalities in the present without taking into account the histories that have produced them. If we're committed to justice, that's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. From Taylor's original paper, funded by his 11 backers in 1821, the Manchester Guardian has grown into the international news organisation, The Guardian, that you know today. This history, now seen in a different light, leads to questions about what to do next. I put this to David Odashoga. The Guardian finds itself in a place that thousands of other institutions either have or will find themselves, which is a moment of honesty. We need to acknowledge that within the financial DNA of The Guardian is the stolen labour and the stolen lives of enslaved people in America, in the Caribbean and in South America. That fact will always be part of the history of The Guardian. 
And then we need to ask the really difficult question, what are we going to do about it? What obligations does that knowledge bring with it? If you can inherit wealth, as the newspaper has from its founders, then we also surely inherit responsibility for the people and the communities today who are the victims of how that wealth was generated. We need to find a way through, and it's going to be difficult and raw and painful. We're going to get things wrong. People are going to be rightly and justifiably angry. But we are, in some ways, in an early stage of a moral revolution. The history of slavery is no longer a quiet ghost. It is no longer airbrushed out of the story. It's on the move. It is active. Thanks for listening. This was episode one of Cotton Capital. In the next episode, we head to Jamaica to look for the site and the legacy of the sugar plantation that lined the pockets of the Manchester Guardian founder, Sir George Phillips, a plantation called Success. After that, we'll be travelling to the sea islands of the United States, Nigeria, Brazil, and back to Manchester before finally looking at reparations and what the Guardian plans to do. To read and watch all the journalism around this series, please go to theguardian.com forward slash cotton dash capital. This is The Guardian.